Well, now we come to our main Bible reading, which is 1 Timothy 3. And it says this. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil." Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Well, in a minute, we're going to have a look at that passage. Before we do, a couple of things to mention. There'll be a question time at the end, so do be aware of it so you can be formulating your questions as we go along. There's also the service sermon outline, which you're free to use or abuse at your will. Um, other than that, let's pray and ask God to help us. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as we reflect on these things, we thank you that you are our Father. You're also our Shepherd, and that you sent your Son to be our, the Good Shepherd. And we thank you that he is the one who has laid down his life for us. We pray, Lord, that these things would, ref, would frame the way we think about how we are to treat one another. That if you've gone to such great extents, to redeem your church with your own blood, then therefore we should have a great respect for one another as those who 
not only bear your image, but have been redeemed by your blood. Amen. Well, imagine it's the Sunday before Christmas and the pastor is preaching on Luke 2. The angel appears to the shepherds and tells them of the good news. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that that shall be for the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Saviour who is Christ the Lord. And the pastor goes on to explain what is significant about this event. It's that the shepherds were complete outcasts. They were the lowest of the low. And even before Jesus had been born, in the angel bringing the good news to the outcasts of Jerusalem, it anticipates who Jesus' ministry will be for. Now this is all well and good, apart from one slight problem. And that problem is Abraham. He was a shepherd. As was his son Isaac. As was his son Jacob. In fact, the nation of Israelites were a nation of shepherds. When Jacob arrived in Egypt, he introduces himself as a shepherd and asks Pharaoh that he be given the land of Goshen to shepherd because every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Moses was a shepherd. He was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, when he came to the bush, that though it was on fire, wasn't being consumed. David was a shepherd. It was his experience as a shepherd that prepared him for his battle with Goliath. And when David reflects upon his relationship with Yahweh, he describes him as his shepherd. It's hard to see how a nation that was so closely linked with shepherding would suddenly consider the occupation of its greatest figures as an abomination. You see, Israel and shepherds are closely linked. But not all of Israel's shepherds were good. Do you remember the first introduction we have to Saul? Saul is working his way from land to land in search of his father's donkeys. Donkeys, incidentally, that he never finds. Saul is a bad shepherd. And this is all intended to be in contrast with David, who is a good shepherd. It means that if Saul's a bad shepherd, then he'll make a bad king. Whereas if David is a good shepherd, then he will make a good king. The one who's able to care for the sheep is able to care for the people. And this brings us to Ezekiel's prophecy we read a moment ago in chapter 34 of Ezekiel. God describes the leaders of Israel as shepherds who devour their sheep. The shepherds were meant to feed the sheep, but instead they fed themselves and neglected the sheep. The sheep were scattered 
and there was none to search or seek for them. The lack of a shepherd for his sheep has meant that they've become prey to the wild beasts. And so God declares he's against the shepherd and he will rescue the sheep. At one point in the narrative or the prophecy, God God becomes the shepherd who will feed his sheep. At another point, he declares it's my servant David who will be the shepherd and he will feed them. Nevertheless, a covenant will be made between God and his sheep that will bring food and safety for his sheep. The leaders of Israel have neglected God's people and for this, they are accountable. Well, this morning we're in 1 Timothy 3. But what we've briefly outlined so far will provide us with a helpful context to understand what we will be considering in this chapter. As we read 1 Timothy 3, as we did earlier, what we see that is expected as qualifications for the overseer may come as a surprise. You know, when you hear people talk about their leaders, those they hold in high regard... People normally talk about how captivating they are, how charismatic they are. We're impressed by those who draw crowds, who speak with authority, those who are asked to speak at conferences, who write books, and have numerous followers on Twitter. They are the celebrities of the Christian world. But if we look at Paul's list... It doesn't include any of these. Above reproach. The husband of one wife. Sober-minded. Self-controlled. Respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle. Not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. What we have here is a list of the mundane it's boring. It just describes a nice person. It's just someone who's able to keep their head down, keep out of trouble, and get on with it. There's nothing inspiring about this list. There's nothing about the character described that would necessarily draw you to him. And yet this list is actually quite remarkable and extremely important. Now, in Mounser's commentary on 1 Timothy, he quotes another commentator called L.T. Johnson, and I believe it's worth hearing what he says. He says this, It is required for stewards that they be found trustworthy. Fidelity to one spouse, sobriety, and hospitality These all may seem trivial virtues to those who identify authentic faith with momentary conversion or single spasm of heroism. But to those who've lived longer and who recognize how the administration of a community can erode even the strongest of characters and the best of intentions, finding a leader who's 
truly is a lover of peace and not a lover of money can be downright exciting. He understands that people may find the virtues in Paul's letter as trivial. They might have expected something a little more impressive. But what he says is particularly interesting because life does take its toll. And as the years pass, as decades pass, as the leader begins to feel hard done by, or if the apparent workload becomes too much, then a leader who's lacking in these virtues may seek out compensation as he compromises the care of the church in order to make money. He may find respite from the odd drink that soon becomes more than the odd drink. Or he may feel that he deserves the love of more than one woman. All of a sudden, we begin to see the importance of the mundane virtues that Paul outlines. Because the man with these characteristics will doggedly finish the race. In verses 4 to 5, Paul spends quite a bit of time on one point. Let me just read that. He must manage his own household well with all dignity keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? A parallel is made between the person who can manage his family and therefore have the ability to care for the people of God. It's an observation that's worth reflecting upon. This is not an arbitrary condition. A test of a person's character comes from how they engage with their own family. The proximity of a family, the extended time a family spends together, brings great demand on a person's ability to be self-controlled, respectable and hospitable. Which means if you can manage your family well, then you have the potential to care for God's people. A man who's estranged from their family or fails his family is in no position to care for God's people. Because where he lets down his family, he'll also let down the church family. But a man whose first concern is the welfare of his family hopefully will extend that care and concern for his wider church family and be willing to go to great lengths for them. Well, as we come to the end of this morning's sermon, I want to focus in on verses 14 to 16. Let me just read them once again. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, Vindicated by the Spirit, seen by the angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. 
verses 14 to 16 comments on everything that Paul has written on so far in 1 Timothy 1 to 3. Everything that Paul has written to Timothy has been written so that the Ephesian church would know how to behave as the household of God. The first reason for them to behave as they should is because they are the household of God. And as God's people, they should reflect God's character. The second reason Paul gives is that the church is the church of the living God. And since God lives, then it's no small thing to behave as the Ephesian church is in a manner contrary to the will of God. Because God will discipline those who damage his house, as we see in 2 Timothy 4, verse 1. The third reason is the church is the pillar and buttress of the truth. Imagine for a moment if Paul had failed through Timothy to put a stop to the heresy of the church in Ephesus. Along with it, the churches around fell foul of the same. Where would we be? Well, we wouldn't be. In God's providence, the church is the means by which he protects his gospel. And this becomes important for us. Throughout the history of the church, from the very beginning, the gospel has been under threat. Will the gospel survive for the generations to come? Well, on the one hand, we can be confident it will, because God is sovereign. It is his eternal plan a plan that he will not allow to be thwarted. Yet the means by which he will keep his gospel is the church, which puts a responsibility on the church to remain faithful and to choose leaders who will remain faithful to the gospel that fit the criteria as Paul outlines here. To finish off chapter 3, Paul then outlines what the gospel is. We can split this verse into two parts. So the first being he was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, seen by angels. Here we have Christ's work on earth. Then the second part, proclaimed among the nations, Believed on in the world, taken up in glory. The second part is the result of his work. So the first line we have is incarnation. The second line we have the vindication at his resurrection. And then seen by angels refers to his ascension. Then he was proclaimed among the nations and many believed. And at the end... He will be glorified in the last days. This is the gospel that God has given to the church. And the church is the outcome of that gospel. The gospel is the salvation, 
that leads to the building of the church. And the church is the instrument through which God protects the gospel. For us today and for the generations to come. What the church doesn't need is leaders who are pseudo-celebrities. Rather, the church needs leaders who have the trivial virtues outlined by Paul. Those that make good shepherds, that will care for God's flock. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for Paul, your servant, who had such a perseverance in seeing your gospel taught and protecting it through your means of the church. As we reflect on these things today, might we consider how we relate to one another in the church, knowing who they are and what you've done for them. Might we also have an eye on the future as we continue to preach and teach your gospel faithfully, knowing that it's through the church that you will keep your gospel for the generations to come. Amen. Well, I mentioned at the start that there'd be an opportunity for questions or comments in light of the things that we've been thinking about. That time has arrived. Any thoughts? Yes, Nikki. Good question. So let me repeat that for recording as I delay to try and think of an answer. So in verse 16 we have, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. So uh, Nikki's question is, why did he describe it, the gospel as the mystery of godliness? So what I think is going on here. So I think what's happening here is obviously as Paul's finished describing the virtues of a pastor, which is worth saying isn't exhaustive or comprehensive, but these are the things that he thought he needed to mention to the Ephesians. It's sort of a, they kept describing it in the commentary as a bit of an ad hoc uh, list that was related to the occasion of the letter, as it were. And I think then, in that context, it's exploring the whole, well, how do we achieve godliness, I guess, and ultimately the godliness which is of a mysterious nature is achieved through, well, first of all, what Jesus did in that he was the epitome of godliness. You know, if we think back in terms of uh, creation, God created the world, created humans to bear his image. Well, who is the ultimate image bearer? It's Jesus. 
the Father's Son reflects the Father's nature in a way that humans were intended to. He's the perfect image bearer. So when he comes, I mean, this is the thing about Jesus. It's a lot more complicated than him just being, oh, well, God comes to earth. It's God comes to earth as a man and lived as a man. It was he who would be the Messiah. That doesn't mean he was divine, but means he was human. And he would live a life as a human of perfection. So what does godliness look like? Well, we see it firsthand at the incarnation. But what about godliness for us? Well, godliness we achieve through him. Obviously, that's where our justification lies. He's the one we imitate. And when we get to glory, it, it will be the image that we bear of God will be through Christ, if you see what I mean. I, th- I think that's the sort of area we want to be in. Yes, Katie. Excellent question. Yes, so just to repeat for the recording, recording. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders. Um, how we to think about that, particularly in terms of when we present the gospel, that's when we can really wind people up and um, uh, that can't be received particularly well. So how do we think of that as being thought well? Uh, and I think you're totally right, Katie, that it's to do with character not to do with gospel presentation. So, um, yeah, I mean, I guess this is the thing, isn't it? If we go out to preach the gospel and they're like, oh, I don't like him, he's a nasty piece of work, you know what he does, don't you? He does this, that, and the other. Before you've even got to the gospel, there's a hostility towards that, uh, that person. But if they're like, oh, I know him, he's a good fella, I wonder what he's got to say, and then he tells the gospel, and they're like, gospel, and, and whatever that would look like, then, um, yeah, that's legitimate. One of the things that I think, what I think is, I mean, this is one of the things that you see in Paul. If you think of him prior to his conversion, the means by which he's destroying the church is the killing and arresting of uh, people in the church. But then afterwards, he becomes a lover of peace, as it were. You know, he, he never offends anyone, apart from the priest, which he apologizes for. But he never offends anyone other than through the gospel. So he goes out of his way, not to be a people pleaser, because that's the point again. He is, his first and foremost concern is that he preaches the gospel and he does that at whatever cost. But if you met Paul, 
you'd get on with him if you know what I mean. Uh, that sort of thing. So we're never to be hostile towards people. Um, the hostility that we will receive has to come through the presentation of the gospel. Something to work on. Yes, Josh. Sure. Just think about um, verse 4 and 5 where Paul says one of the um, one of the litmus tests is only the church being able to keep his children submissive um, and that's evidence of someone a leader being able to manage their own household well. Just thinking like how do we think about that? So obviously that has implications for us. Okay, yes, yeah. And also, um, verse 12, again, talks about deacons as um, being the husband of one wife. So just thinking just the kind of, just in the whole kind of roles and, you know, does that have implications for sure. people being deacons in the church? Yes, sure. So let me just repeat the recording. So a couple of things. So a number of times it talks about the leaders being the husband of one wife, how we're to understand that. And then also it says, um, if someone does not know how to manage his own chart, uh, no, verse four, he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. So yeah, a few things to mention with regards to this. Um, I think probably the first and best thing to start with is Paul and Timothy. As far as we know, Paul and Timothy were single and neither of them had children. So, given that context, when they say, oh, you must have one wife and your children must be submissive, we kind of have to read into that, assuming you have children, assuming you are married. So, it doesn't mean if you don't have children and therefore, or if you're not married, you're disqualified from being it. Rather, it's just, you know, almost implied in there is you have to be a husband of one wife if you're married. If you're not married, then you can still, still legitimate. If you've got a family, you've got children, then they should be submissive. But if you haven't, then that's fine. Um, and obviously one of the big things there is obviously we've got um, given the fact that Paul and Timothy didn't have that therefore but were still qualified as being to be overseers um, another thing worth mentioning so I got this wrong last week um, I know the question came about the husband of one wife and I went for the context of polygamy so I suggested just for those who weren't here that um, because of the, the Ephesian church could have been a place where there was lots of polygamy, he was saying you have to be a husband of one wife. If you have multiple wives, then you can't be a deacon. That disqualifies you, or an elder. Um, but that is one option, but it was quickly dismissed um, from the commentary. Rather here, I think the idea is um, fidelity. So if you're married... You are, there's an expectation that you are faithful to your wife. 
And there's lots of reasons why actually this fits a lot better uh, than the polygamy thing, because it's much broader. And also, it taking us back to the Old Testament, it's that imagery that we find in the Old Testament of God being the faithful husband and Israel being the unfaithful wife. And idolatry is described as adultery. It's very hard to say those two words next to each other. Adultery. Um, So when the people are described, they're described as an adulterous people, not because they've left their husband, but because their God, who is their husband, they've left, and therefore it's thinking in terms of idolatry. So therefore, it doesn't really make sense for an elder of the church or an overseer of the church to be an adulteress. That just doesn't fit. Because if you can't remain faithful in your own relationship, how can you remain faithful to the God? Um, Yeah, so we've got that parallel. So I hope that's helpful. So yes, I know we we joked last week about Adrian keeping his job. Uh, Fortunately, he can keep his job. And, you know... It's not like we haven't thought about these things already. <laughs> the world's... The world's... <laughs> uh, we've had three. Anyone else got... A, they, they were coming thick and fast, so anyone else got another question? No? Go on, Nikki. What are you thinking? Precisely, yes. Yeah, so, um, so uh, yeah. Is that just a comment? Well, I have a question. Um, or rather, the question should be, um, yeah, no, I can say stuff about it if you want me to, or we could just leave it there. No, so Nikki rightly says that the description we've got here, really, it, you know, this could be a description of a Christian, and this is something we all should be aiming for. Um, you know, we should all be faithful to uh, our wives, um, and that doesn't mean we all need to have a wife to be a Christian, um, and all, all these sorts of things. Um, so, yes, and I think, I think the other thing is that's important to mention, well, the, a couple of things, really. If we can't find this in our leaders, then how are we expected to do this? Uh, shame on them. But another thing is, is there'll be an expectation that actually we all have this qualification. We could all be elders because we all have this qualification. So then they'll, therefore at some point there becomes a pragmatic approach. Well, why am I not an elder? I've got all these qualifications. And it's simply a matter of, well, we've just got too many elders as it is. You, you could be uh, an elder because you have these qualifications, but... You won't be an elder just because it's a practical thing. Another side of things is... Um, oh, I've forgotten. But, yeah, um, these are those things, uh, as Nikki points out, that they are the mundane, but actually these are the things that will keep us going till the end. These are the things that will help us to persevere. This is, what's, this is where the magic's happening. 
you know, this is the thing that will keep us to eternity. Uh, the church has this tendency to get excited about a lot of things, but this is where we should be getting excited. Let's stop there. I've had four questions. That's not allowed. Don't tell Adrian. We're going to sing our next song, which is uh, My Hope is Built, and then we'll have a further reflection.